Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke, and I'm here in studio with my co-host, Dr. Brian Nixon, and of course, with our indefatigable sound engineer, Daniel. He has been faithful every week, and we appreciate his services. If you have been tracking with us, you know that we're on Cults and Solutions 2.0. Mm-hmm. So last week, we covered Montanism, where we talked about radical Pentecostalism and how that connects to some of the movements in the modern church. This week, we are covering, and hold your horses on this one, it's a little bit of a, it's a familiar term, but it's not quite so familiar in how it's chopped up, monarchianism, monarchianism. And yes, it is what it sounds like. It has to do with monarchy, which is the idea of governance, but it has some very surprising theological parts that I'm going to let Brian largely unpack the history of this because there's not a whole lot, as we've mm-hmm. talked about last week, but there's enough for us to figure out what that is. And generally, the idea is, well, you know what? I think I'm going to leave that to Brian. I'm going to let him <laughs> unpack that. And then we're going to talk about the theological implications of it because right. I don't want to take away what little there is out of the prep that he's done because I love to hear his history. And Luke, how was uh, your week uh, at Calvary College? It was amazing, Brian. We went out to one of our local retail outlets and had the privilege of leading two people to the Lord. Wow. And then one of my students led another person to the Lord. So we won the security guard. We won a young man sitting on a bench. It was Devon and Nashon. And then I didn't get the name from the other team of a lady that they won in Bed Bath and Beyond. So we got to see three people come into the kingdom last week. And so we were rejoicing, we're wow. praising the Lord, and we're going to be doing it again this week. We're covering some evangelical literature because I let him go out there. I said, you need to go out first without really a safety to accept what you've been taught in class. It's the only way you're going to really make this mm-hmm. click. This week, we're going to look at an old track you're probably familiar with, Ford Porter's yep. Simple Plan of Salvation, hmm. so that they have an idea. And at the end of the class, they're going to be writing their own gospel tract that sort of incorporates all the things that they've understood that are necessary to connect with somebody about the gospel and about leading them into the So cool. That's exciting. There, it, It's not just classroom knowledge. It's it's practical knowledge. They're, they're seeing it firsthand. And to see fruit is even oh, even that much better. It was, it was amazing. We were praying so much for that, that the Lord would just show up and, and lead us. And he did. And we're definitely on cloud nine about that. What about yourself? Well, uh, we are obviously in the 20th century in church history. And we discussed this week the rise of Pentecostalism mm. in conjunction with the rise of the evangelical church. It's interesting with Pentecostalism, a lot of what we, we're going to be talking about, a little bit of what we're going to be talking about, has some correlation to this yeah. this ancient unorthodox teaching. So in the 20th century and next week, we're talking about the history of the Jesus people with mm. a, an emphasis on Calvary chapels, of course. So, oh, man, that's So exciting. it'll be exciting. But anyway... Back to our subject at hand, monarchianism. And you usually give us a few points just to start off with. So, Luke, why don't you give us those points before I give you the small bit of history that we know? Yes, sir. So, monarchianism was about the oneness of God, but not in a unifying sense, as a singularity. But there was more than one way to get there. And Brian's going to unpack that for us. From what I understand, and there's not a lot of this in the history part, but this comes from my own personal studies in early Christianity and early Christian identity, but this monotheistic thrust that sort of dominates this entire philosophy, I believe came from the Judeo-Christian community, which largely became irrelevant by the 4th century. Now, these are the people who were trying to basically mix and match both Christianity and Judaism. Mm-hmm. And this is the same thing that happened in Islam. 
a lot of the early heresies, monothelitism and monophysitism, both came from the early church being pressured by monotheistic religion, but not Judaism. It was Islam. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the things that I think may be happening there. Number three, as we're going to find out, very little of the writings of these men survive to this day. And the doctrine preceded and followed the Council of Nicaea. And Brian's going to unpack who those men were. We think it may have come from three, but I'm not going to say their names. I'm going to leave that to Brian. Um, the fella who may have been responsible for the destruction of those writings, interesting man. I don't know if you put this in your history prep or not, Brian. I hope I'm not stealing any of your thunder. But mostly, we think that maybe Athanasius had everything to do with this. Now, if you guys remember when we were talking about this, we talked about this in regard to the Nag Hammadi Library, how that Athanasius pushed to remove many of the Gnostic heresies mm -hmm. and other writings in addition to Gnosticism. And its potential was that it probably included these doctrine that were written by these men. This is why we don't have any of their extant writings. Speculative, mm -hmm. but largely possible. And then fifth, and I always try to save the best one for last. It's sort of an awful thing, Brian, but I have to say it. And nobody misunderstand or take this off the rails, but in part of the teachings of this, there's the idea that at some point, Jesus became the Son of God. Mm -hmm. And some people believe this was at his birth. Some people believe that this was at his baptism. And some people believe this was at his resurrection. And all of them are wrong. Mm -hmm. However, there is somebody that you know that at one point actually fell into this error, and his name is John MacArthur. Now, he talks about this himself. The reason I bring that up, not for you to go have John MacArthur for dinner. It's because no matter how skilled you may be, you have to constantly be vigilant regarding how people teach who Jesus is. Now, if you go to his website, he has a full disclaimer there, so I'm not saying he currently believes this, but he does say this. The title on his website is Re-Examining the Eternal Sonship of Christ. And he says, after discussing the doctrine, he states that he did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God until after his incarnation, which is his birth. He then goes on to say, in both instances, as he addresses the finer points, in both instances, I re-emphasized my unqualified and unequivocal commitment to the biblical truth that Jesus is eternally God. The incarnational sonship view, while admittedly a minority opinion, is by no means rank heresy. And here you find a gradient that's involved with, uh, is this damnable heresy or is this just run-of-the-mill heresy, which is a discussion all of itself. But significantly, he obviously believes it is not biblical and has removed himself from that viewpoint and has come to an appropriate viewpoint of Christ being the eternal son of God, which is stands in stark mm -hmm. contrast mm -hmm. to the people that we're going to be discussing today. Right. right. And that's really, that's really good. And I'm glad you brought up a modern day example. And I know you, you will bring up some more later, but I get this asked a lot in class. And that is why were there so many early Christian heresies? And the answer is pretty complex, actually. The answer is, A, because all Christian communities didn't have the totality of Scripture. Scripture wasn't officially, if you will, codified until the Nicene Council in 325. So different Christian communities had, they may have had the four Gospels, a few letters of Paul, 
And they debated back and forth what other letters should be there. So a lot of the heresies came up because, A, they lacked sufficient biblical evidence. Number two, you've already alluded to it, is that they were relying on other religious traditions to really frame the questions that mm. were being posed by the, the new Christian, uh, the rise of Christian faith. In, in the case of Judaism in the early church, later on the medieval period, Islam was, you know, a big threat. And then you also have to look at a lot of these communities were already invested in Zoroastrianism and yeah. all of these other religious ideals that kind of, they curated, they, they snuck their way in and, and then they became part of, of some of these communities. So when you look at this and you look at some of the people I'm going to be saying, doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to see them in heaven. Um, these people may not have had the full exposure of scripture. They may not have had a great pastor teaching them. Um, they may have been mistaken. As a matter of fact, one of the fellows we're going to talk about was a very devout guy. And he really yearned to please the Lord. But like John MacArthur, he just wasn't maybe either thinking through it all thoroughly or he didn't have full access to this. So when we say someone's a heretic, that doesn't necessarily mean they weren't a believer in Christ. Right. We're not by no means saying John MacArthur is not going to heaven. That's by no means what we're saying is we're saying some people will reevaluate their belief system, and then go, oh, yeah, I, I guess I'm wrong there. Before the radio, Luke, you and I were just talking about um, some of these groups, and and sometimes even pastors. Yeah. They, they, they're not seminary trained, or they haven't given the time or the energy to intricacies of the theological arguments, and so they may jump on a bandwagon that they later on go, oh, boy, was I off there. Doesn't mean they're not a Christian. And if I may say something, this is such a great point that you're making, Brian, when it comes to theology, I remember my, one of my old pastors, he said, a church always goes liberal from the pew. And I didn't understand that when I was a young man as much as I do now. A lot of churches expect that their pastor knows everything mm -hmm. and that he's never going to fall into error. When really, as him being our brother in Christ, it's the responsibility of the church to be a Berean, and if they see someone overtaken in a fault, the ones who are spiritual are supposed to talk to him and help him. And that includes the pastor. Mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean you go and challenge your pastor at all times anytime you have a difference in preference. That's not, right. what's, that's not what we're talking about. But the church has a responsibility to support its pastor in the study of the Scriptures. And that means you know, maybe sometimes instead of leaving a church automatically as soon as something happens from the pulpit, maybe— Matthew Take eighteen, the time. yeah, <clears throat> right, and and who knows what might happen? I mean, look at look at what happened with John. Yeah, you know, I mean, and how many other examples of that? So, yeah, great yeah. point. Yeah, and and again, that was a great segue, and and so I just wanted to kind of lay a foundation that when we talk about these guys and you throw out that word heresy, it, it, throughout the centuries, it's become a very loaded word, and it's like a lot of people they just equate it, oh, that that they're in hell, but that's not necessarily the case. Because there was insufficient, a lot of these things, it's a lot more fluid in the early church. Um, today, right. we have the full council of Scripture. We've got 2,000 years of church history that we could weigh it against. We've got common sense. There's a lot of other things we could, we could weigh in. But in the early church wasn't so much the case. So all that said and done, with monarchianism, as you've already pointed out, it's, it's 
monarchy or, or the governorship or really talking about the unity of the Godhead yeah. is what it is, the, the three persons. So it had its origins in Turkey, we think. And could it have been influenced by a very strong Jewish contingency? Probably. But we don't have any documentary evidence to lay down this idea of who started it. What we do know is that by about 190-ish AD, a guy by the name of Praxius was starting to teach this very oneness type ideology, um, probably a very Jewish-centered one concerning the Godhead. And whether or no Praxius knew the Orthodox position or he knew he was blatantly teaching something contrary, we don't know. We don't know a lot about him. All we know is that he shows up in Rome. So he leaves Turkey and he shows up in Rome and he gets the attention of Tertullian. Mm. And Tertullian goes, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. The, uh, what you're teaching is not necessarily what we've come to understand through the apostolic succession. So it's a foreign teaching, really. And um, it's one that Tertullian challenged. We don't know what Praxis was doing in Turkey before, but all we know is the main person associated with monarchianism, which is a modalist thought, is Notus, N-O-E-T-U-S. He also comes from Turkey on the heels of Praxis, and he starts teaching a very similar ideology. And whether or not Praxis and Notus had, you know, conversations or the interactions in Turkey, we don't know. But we do know that Noetus starts to convert people to his ideology. And so you have Epigonas and you have Cleomenes who start teaching there. So essentially he's getting a little team together. He's getting people around him that disciples that are starting to teach this. And just for our audience, both of the folks that Brian just mentioned, these were Greek philosophers. Mm -hmm. And there's very little evidence that any of them ever really came to a position of what we would call Christian orthodoxy and may have just piggybacked a lot of the paganism right into what Noetus was teaching. Right. And one, one of the things that, that are difficult for historians, Luke, and you understand this, you're working on your doctorate in history, is <laughs> a lot of times history's written by the guy who's winning. And, <laughs> right. and in this case, Tertullian, who we've talked about right. many times, he's very verbose. He's very, he makes sure he writes things down. He, he, he confronts what he considers error. So when we read Tertullian, who really is the main guy we're getting this information from, we're not getting the full scope of what they believed or what they had for. Because as you pointed out, maybe later on, Athanasius said, uh, we're going to make sure this stuff is destroyed. Who knows? Maybe yeah. somewhere in the future, that archaeological spade will uncover some more that would be books. Amazing. And then we would be able to, with more detail, compare and contrast what it was that the Orthodox Christians were fighting against monarchianism. But what happens is Notius shows up and everyone's going, okay, Praxis just had something very similar. This is not sounding right. And the key phrase that really tripped people up was this. 
the father himself had suffered and died and then resurrected himself. So that, as you could imagine, caused suspicion in Tertullian and other Orthodox believers who are going, wait, wait a minute. The father and the son are two different persons. And it wasn't the father that resurrected. It was the son that resurrected. So what Notius was doing is he was confusing the unity and the three persons. So he was going for a very modalistic understanding, modalistic monarchanism, which is this idea that one God basically changes forms, if you will. You <laughs> right. know, he's, he's the father and then, then he's the son and then he's the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, is a, is a wrong view. Or Christian biblical orthodoxy teaches that there's three distinct individual persons who are one in essence, in what we would call in Greek parakehesis, the unity of the Godhead yes. mixed in love and will and, and, and everything else. But anyway, so when he said the father himself had suffered and died, red flags went up. And so he was summoned before the Roman church and asked about his, his views. And at first, he denied them, probably realizing like, oh, okay, I was taught wrong or our understanding of what we were picking up in Turkey wasn't fully, fully right. And, and he said, no, this is, this is not what, what we're teaching. But because he started a little group, a little team, if you will, disciples, they were coming alongside. And as you said, they were Greek philosophers who are going, no, you know, stand firm on this. We're growing. We're growing our team. Our, we're, you know, we're almost, we can almost feel the soccer team here. And, and so when he was called back a second time, he, he basically goes, no, this is, this is what we're going to teach and this is what we're going to believe. And so what happens is the Roman church says, hey, listen, you, you, you can't, we're not going to support you. We're not going to support what you're saying. And this is contrary to what we have been handed down by the apostles. And so one of the major guys who, other than Tertullian, who took notice was Hippolytus. And he came out very strongly against these guys and also started to write against them and clearly said, this is a wrong teaching. It's a, it's a heresy and really need to watch out for it. So Hippolytus basically says, these guys are off base. And interestingly enough, a lot of monarchianism found its way in monotonism, which is what we talked about last time. And there was a lot of different shades and phrases of this. And mm. I don't want to steal your thunder, but just for our listeners, before I turn it over to Luke, is by 268, it's a done deal. Meaning even though in the two early 200s, it's condemned, by 268, it's you are not, this is a wrong teaching. And so it starts to fade out and it makes its way in different things, you know, as you'll point out later, oneness Pentecostal. But what we have to do is the different shades. Monarchianism really has dynamic monarchianism and then it has modalistic monarchianism. And as I point out, modalistic is this idea that God the Father sort of morphs turns into God the right. Son, and then he morphs and turns into God the Holy Spirit, which is different than dynamic Marcanism. And you referenced dynamic Marcanism at the beginning, that Christ was a mere man when he was born. But at some time in his life, be it at the incarnation, be it at the resurrection, or even some would say at the ascension, he became God. So 
when you're looking at monarchianism, you have to know that there's modalistic monarchianism, which is the idea that God just chameleon, you know, he changes forms. And then secondary, the dynamic Marcanism, which is really more Christ-centered, that he somehow, somewhere in his life became God, but he didn't start off as God. And you pointed out that John MacArthur had a lesser um, understanding of that. So that's the history. And again, like all the others, there's there's not a whole um, bunch. But let me just go to our J.N.D. Kelly, our Scotsman, who is really one of the, the authorities on this. And he would say dyna- dynamic markingism, um, more accurately called adoptionism, was the theory that Christ was a mere man and then upon God's spirit um, had descended him at some point in his life and he became God. And he talks about different people throughout church history who've, who've held to a form of this. And, right. and it's still with us today in, in some, some regards. And then modalistic monarchianism is the oneness of God um, and how the God, his economy has basically changed form. He's, he's kind of like a, a chameleon of sorts. Um, and so he would say that's what Notius and others in the early church were holding. So again, two different forms of monarchianism, but our listeners need to know that both of these in some form or fashion are still present and active in the church today. Exactly right. And they're, they're present. And I know we, we have hit Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons several times in the exposition of these types of ideas. But honestly, folks, they are a catch-all for so many errors doctrinally. But this whole idea of the deity of Christ, the way that they compose that in Mormonism, one of the most common elements is what man is, God once was, and what God is, man may become. Mm -hmm. And they use Jesus as an example of this. And they have a very basic misconception about the Father, about his physicality. They believe that he has a body. They may even sometimes equate him, as we talked about, with Adam. There's all kinds of strange things that are happening there. They all come and they spring from this root Mm -hmm. of an effective misunderstanding of the person and identity of Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus becomes Michael the Archangel when he's resurrected. And so it's not that he's becoming God per se, but he's being restored to the created being that he is, which is both in the roots of Arianism, which we attached to it last time, but there's also something of that in Monarchianism as well, right. where he is, and it's it's spoken of by Athanasius, speaks about it, Tertullian speaks about it. Both of them confront this aspect about how is it exactly that Jesus arrived on the scene if the Bible says that he issued from the Father. Right. So in what manner did he issue? And this is why, as Brian correctly pointed out, we believe that they are of one essence. Homeostasis, basically, is the word that we get from the idea of the Greek word that comes underneath that, which is they are not of separate essences, as is taught adoptionism. Modalism teaches, oh, yeah, he's all of one essence because it's actually the same person doing three different things. Right. So this is really where the distinctions come in. Now, what I want to do for you, and I know that when we get into the heavy doctrine, some of you guys eat that up, and some of you are probably saying, man, I really want to understand this. And it, it's it's too much too fast, and the mm-hmm. names are too big, and I, I still want you to track with us. What I'm going to try to do is not necessarily go into an expose of every single denomination that currently holds these beliefs, because there's too many of them. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to how we discussed the New Apostolic Reformation, where it's not really a denomination, it's a movement, it's a belief system mm-hmm. that's pervasive. 
This is much the same way. Now, this is a far less pervasive idea, but you can find pieces of it in many places. Most of them are concentrated. Most of the pieces of this doctrine or effects of this doctrine are concentrated in oneness Pentecostalism mm -hmm. that Brian's already mentioned, but also in apostolic fellowships. And it's not a symmetrical thing. We were talking about this before we started this show. If I, for instance, were to say, well, this is a facet of the Assemblies of God, or it's a facet of the Church of God, there'd be people who say, I go to the Church of God, or I used to go to the Church of God, and that's not true. Well, that's right. In some churches, that's not going to be true. But this is to say that those types of organizations have connections. Right to this type of doctrine, and some of them actually do believe this. And like we talked about before the broadcast, Luke, a lot of times these denominational churches, they, they may not have an official statement regarding this, but individuals, a certain pastor right. or a certain group of pastors adhere to this. And like you pointed out with MacArthur, may, they may not even understand what they're adhering to, but it's something they were taught or they come to the conclusion. So a lot of times it's down to individuals, an individual pastor versus exactly. even a denomination. No, exactly right, Brian. And I, I would say that when it comes to really the randomness almost of this popping up, I think it goes back to what we've often said about cultic doctrine and that it, it is often produced and maintained by people who do not have any solid biblical training. Now, they try to get around this by creating their own schools and their own seminaries that are really indoctrination centers, and they're not really places where you go to robustly interact with Scripture. You're there to learn a very particular thing and to make sure that when you exit the doors of that school that you've continued to maintain that belief. So that being said, I want to unpack some of this for you by using some verses that are often used in support of these doctrines. Because when someone comes up to you and says, well, yeah, I believe in God, and you find out that they're a oneness Pentecostal, or they're apostolic, and they believe in the oneness of God, they're going to challenge you on this. And honestly, this entire error springs from this idea that the Bible itself claims that God is one, and therefore, you know, one is one, and one is one, and forever will be. We're going to break that down, and I don't think that can really be done. And without speaking specifically of the doctrine of the Trinity. So I'm going to do what I've done on another show, and I just want to break this down for you very quickly because it matches with what scriptures say. But it isn't often how people perceive the scripture or can be made to perceive the scripture and what it's saying. So the idea of the Trinity is not that there are three separate gods. And you say, well, but aren't each of them God? Yes, but think about even saying that statement. When we talk about each of the members of the Trinity being God, we're not saying that there are three separate gods. And we're not playing gymnastics. We're just having to challenge the perception because when someone says one, well, then you think that there's just one. But it depends on what it is that you're saying is one. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, if I said, for instance, that there was one spaceship, okay, well, there's one spaceship doesn't mean that there's three spaceships that are somehow or another thought of as one. There's one spaceship. Now, if I said there was one dozen eggs, ah, well, that's a different thing, isn't it? Because in my application of the word one, I am referring to a plurality. This is how you must conceive the Trinity. There is one God, the word in which that takes life is the word God. God is not a name. It is a title. So we say there's one God. It's one God comprised of three persons who 
in any other circumstance, if we said, okay, how about for an earthly example, that always breaks down because we don't have a great way to relate the perfection of God to anything here on earth or the equality of God. Not really going to happen. But in concept, if I said, okay, so say for instance, you have a really massive company, something maybe five times the size of Apple Corporation. You're like, oh, Apple Corporation, five times, that's impossible. It's just an example. So, And the CEO position was such a difficult position that it required three different people to execute the office. So they hire three people who are collectively the CEO. Now, these people are all different, but they all have particular tasks that they've chosen, and they divide the work up among themselves for this executive position. And that having been done, nonetheless, any one of them has the same authority as any of the others. And together, they all serve as the executive of that company. They all occupy the same office. Now, while they cannot do that with the perfection of equality that God has, this is particularly how the Bible reveals God, that God is an office which is occupied by three distinct persons, the Father, who is the Father of spirits, and he is spirit. Then there is the Son, who has been made flesh, and he is the mediator, and he is the Savior, and he is the creator. These are his responsibilities, among many, many others. And then there is the Spirit, who, as the Comforter, is brought alongside us to indwell us, to evoke within us all of the attributes of God, thus transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what his ministry is. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Well, what is that? This is the idea of predestination, that we are predestined, the Bible says, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the work of the Spirit. Now, Arguably, that cannot be done. Someone cannot transform you into the image of Christ unless they themselves possess the attributes of Christ, which is why sometimes the Spirit of God is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. So this is where the overlaps come in. These are the chosen orders of submission that exist within the Godhead, not because there is an inequality or an inferiority of subordination, but rather a chosen order in order that we might understand them. So three separate persons, perfectly equal, co-eternal, and they work together to execute the office of God, each of them being equal in power and authority. Now, to me, that doesn't seem like a very hard thing to grasp unless one has a reason to do otherwise. And we're going to talk about some of these ideas that have arisen in these other doctrinal systems where they tried to reconcile what it meant for God to be one. And what's happening with the whole God is one is that, again, they fundamentally misunderstand what it is to which the word one has been applied, like the difference between one spaceship and one dozen eggs. Now, spiritually, theologically, to unpack this, I want to review these verses. One of the main proof texts that they use to try to establish that there is only one person who is God. That's really what they're saying. We're saying there is God in three persons, God, the office of God occupied by three separate individuals versus the office of God being a single individual. That's where the difference comes in. 
They claim that we're idolaters because we worship other entities as if they were also God. And sometimes they deny that there are other entities whatsoever. Or if they can't deny it, they have to figure out how they need to portray the reality of Jesus' life in a manner that still allows them to claim that God is one. And by that, that there's just one person who is God. So one of the ways that they do this some forms of modalism, they'll use John chapter 10, verse 30, where he says, I and the Father are one. And what they're saying is that they're one in the same person, that the Father was here pretending to be Jesus Christ, or was however they choose to do this. He was at this point interacting with people as Jesus Christ, but it was really the Father. This was just sort of an avatar that he was using. Another verse that they might use is, Isaiah 9, 6, where it says Jesus is the everlasting Father. Now, we're going to just use those couple of verses just because of the limited time, because I want to spend most of the time going to verses that refute this, to give you a solid ground to stand on when it comes to properly understanding what the Bible says about who Jesus is and who God is. Now, as before, when I mentioned where I thought this came from, I believe it was from Jewish monotheism. And that is made all the stronger by the fact it happens in Turkey, because this is where the first churches were established. This is where the majority of the early apostolic work was done, was in Asia Minor. Eventually, through Paul, that spread further. But if you look at, for instance, First and Second Peter, those were done through Bithynia, Cappadocia, etc. These are all places in Turkey. The letters that John wrote to churches were all written to churches that were on the western edge of Turkey. Now, the reason why that's significant is because this is where a large number of Jewish synagogues were. <clears throat> and in the book of Acts, you find that this is largely where the apostles would go first. They'd go to the Jew first and then to the Greek, and then after they were rejected, they would go to the Greek population. Now, the Jews needed for there to just be one God, and this is largely because of Deuteronomy in 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And their conception of that is that there was only one person. There was the Father, their Father, the Father of Israel. This is who they sort of superimpose into Isaiah, where it talks about the Son of God was actually Israel. They don't believe that it was Jesus. They think he's talking about the nation. There's one God and one Father. But even in the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus himself alluded to this. He said, search the scriptures, for in them you think that ye have salvation, but they are they which testify of me. You also find him with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where he spoke beginning at Moses and began to declare all things what concerning himself, or the time where he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. This day is the scriptural fulfilled in your ears, referring to himself as the year of the Lord's favor as being the Lord. Malachi chapter 2 verse 10 says this, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Well, that's a very interesting statement because it differentiates. It doesn't say, Have we not one Father who hath created us? It says, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Now the scriptures are clear that God, through Jesus Christ, created the worlds. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. And you say, Well, why are we talking about this? Because I want you to see that there is individuality, plurality within the Godhead, not a plurality of gods, a plurality of persons. And this is fully biblical, and it's even intimated in Old Testament passages. My argument about why this verse says what it says the way that it says it is all the way back in Genesis, where he says, let us make 
man in our image. You see, the word Elohim is actually plural, and yet it's one of the titles attributed to God, something he attributes to himself or something through which he reveals himself. So when it's saying that the Lord is one God, it's not just talking about a single person. And the reason for that is this. You look at the plurality that's mentioned when God himself speaks. So he's not saying that there is a plurality of gods, but there is definitely a clear intimation that there are multiple persons who are inside that term God. Now, this distinguishes between the Father and the Creator, just like the New Testament does. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. What does it say? Well, I'll read verse 1 as well. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and here's the clincher, by whom also he made the worlds. Let's go back to Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? This means that creation was a collaborative product of the Godhead, and we see that in Genesis where he clearly states, let us make man in our image. In Mark chapter 12, verse 32, it says, And the scribe said unto him, in reference to a question that was asked, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. Now, Jesus isn't disagreeing with the fact that there's one God. He's disagreeing with the construct in this man's mind about the fact that God is not just one person. Romans chapter 3, verse 30, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him. And listen to this. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Let's go back to Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one Father, and hath not one God created us? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, it's clearly saying that there's one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. This gives you the plurality. It's clearly talking about two separate people, the Father and the Son, who is the Creator. So this confirms what was being said in Old Testament Scripture, that the Jews had fundamentally misunderstood one of the reasons why Christ rebukes them, saying, if you knew the Father, you would know me. This is what he's saying when he says, I and the Father are one. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. He's not saying that there's only one person who's masquerading as three different people, or in this case, as two. He's saying that the idea of God is a plural idea, not, again, that there are many gods, but that it is acting like a collective noun in which three separate identities who are perfectly equal reside and execute that office. Ephesians 4 verse 6 says it again. There is one God, and then it separates here, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. First Timothy says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So it's clearly including Jesus in the Godhead, and it's even telling you specifically about his role. Now, it begs the question of why in the Old Testament, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, why does that need to be stated? If there really was only one person to start with, and that's all there ever was, then why would he bother telling everybody that there was only one? It doesn't make any sense. That's like you going up and introducing yourself to somebody and saying, hey, by the way, I'm only one person. 
and I'll never be anybody else. Like who, Nobody does that. Why? Because it's very obvious that there's only one person. The only reason why you would need to say that there's one God is to specifically bifurcate or divide the idea that there's not just one person who occupies the office that is God. He's clearly saying that all of those who occupy the Godhead occupy it in complete unity, as one unit, yet three separate persons. In other words, they are perfectly equal. They are not three separate gods. They act together as one God. That's the only way that this statement makes sense. It makes absolutely no sense if there's only one person who tells Israel, by the way, I'm only one person. It's like, yeah, you know, we sort of got that already, but they didn't really get it. And so he says this statement specifically to open that door that says, yes, there's one God and it's me. And largely, if you look at Old Testament scripture, you find that it's the person of Jesus that interacts because the pre-incarnate Christ is the only one that shows up. That's why the Bible says that no man hath ever seen the Father except for the Son. Now all these statements start to make sense. No man hath seen the face of God at any time and lived. And you're like, wait a minute, but Moses saw him. No. Number one, Moses didn't see his face. Number two, God is a spirit, which means he cannot be seen by men's eyes, not in the physical realm. And there's only one, the Bible says in the New Testament, one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one person who's ever been the tangible, seeable, touchable member of the Godhead, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's been an eternity past all the way until now and for, will be forever. That's why he says what he says in the book of Revelation, I'm the first and the last. And then it says particularly, I am Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's, he's very clearly pinpointing this idea of what his role within the Godhead has always been. And it has been that one who both brought the physical realm into existence and that one of the Godhead who constantly interacts with us, brings our petitions to the Father, intercedes for us to the Father, forgives our sins, comes and dies for our sins on the world, presents himself as a sacrifice to the Father. This is the role of a mediator, the liaison, if you will. And these things are countenanced all throughout the Old Testament. Now, I'm saying this, again, to point out how this assertion of there just being one person who is God is absurd according to Scripture. Now, one of the things that we mentioned earlier about Tertullian, this is second century, folks, so this is before the year 200 AD. This is less than 150 years, well, right around 150 years after Christ. The early church already had in their possession the understanding of Trinity. A lot of the restoration movements that underlie these strange modern growths of this doctrine, whether it be Arianism, modalism, Gnosticism, etc., these restoration movements that go back, they always try to say, well, they're going back to the earliest sources. But what we find from this dialogue between Tertullian in the second century is he is arguing for the fact that this other guy, Praxius, Anotius, these guys are the newcomers. Not that they were there first and the church somehow developed this doctrine in contradistinction to them, but that they were already at odds with what the church doctrine was, despite the fractious nature of the early church. Those who were in leadership did have access to the documents of the scripture. And most of the leadership that were bishops had as much of the scripture as could be had at that time and had clearly already established the doctrine of the Trinity, else they would not have been offended at the doctrine that was being taught of this singularity, which came from Judaism. 
Hopefully you're still tracking with me here because there is some more. Even in the passage of that main verse that I already used in John chapter 10, verse 30, where he says, I and the Father are one, the context says in verse 31, Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Now here's some more interesting things from the Old Testament. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, it says this, Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? Now that's a pretty obvious rhetorical question. That's obviously God. And then listen to this last part of the verse. What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. Now that poses a huge problem for the classic monotheism, because we're monotheists, but not because, again, that we believe that there is a single individual who is God, but that there are three separate persons who occupy the office of God. This verse calls that out. It makes it very clear. And how much more sense does this make when Christ is upset at the Pharisees and the scribes when he says in Nicodemus's hearing, John 3, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son. He expected Nicodemus to know that that was already an established truth that God has a son and that that son wasn't Israel. And what's he continue to say? That whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And now it becomes clear that the life that is in Jesus Christ, the life that he offers is the very life of God because they are of the same essence. It is true life. This is why he says what he says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The only way that one can be in union with God is if one possesses the righteousness of God, which then clearly entails having the life of God within oneself, the only thing that is true life, which is connection to God through Jesus Christ as God himself. This is why Jesus is the Savior of the world, because he, through faith in him, provides righteousness to all those who come. But this should have been known when Jesus arrived. This was not the singularity that they were anticipating. This is the same error that the modern modalists are making in denying the place of Jesus as not just the Son of God, but as God the Son. There's other things that affect their view of the Holy Spirit, but this is also extremely important to understand from Scripture. I don't have time to get into all of that this morning, but even John 1.1, a verse with which all of you are familiar, what's it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. By him were all things made, and without him was nothing made that was made. Here's the same thing, confirming what we saw in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, that Jesus was the creator. We saw this again in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. But there's something even more important in this verse if you're trying to defeat these modalistic ideas or these adoptionist ideas. It says, Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? 
says, what is his name and what is his son's name? This means that those two together, and we know the spirit was also involved in creation. Remember the first part of Genesis 1? And the earth was without form and void, and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So you see all three there. Now, the tie-in to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, is actually Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to Paul's description. Ephesians 4, verse 7, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. There's the mention of Jesus Christ. Wherefore, he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Verse 9, Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And you find Christ referring to this when he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This is the foundation for Paul's statement about never being separated from the love of Christ by anything. Depth, height. This is a restatement of Psalm chapter 139 where it says, Even there shall thy right hand hold me. Whether I take the wings of the morning, will I dwell on the othermost parts of the sea, whether I make my bed in hell. This is a clear connection between the work of Jesus Christ in his redemption of those who are in Abraham's bosom, his statement of authority over heaven and earth, having the keys of death and of hell. This is all clearly the same person who's being described in Proverbs 30, verse 4, in Psalm chapter 139, in Psalm chapter 2, where it says, I have begotten my son, I have made the decree, and I'm going to make him the ruler of Zion. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Who is he referring to? That's clearly the same person who's being mentioned in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in Ephesians chapter 4, and that's even mentioned in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Now, if these things are true, then that leaves very little room for this idea that God is a singular person, but rather that there is more than one person occupying the office, which is God, and not in a manner that is contradictory to anything that scriptures teach about there being one God, three persons executing the office of God with equal power, with equal majesty with equal attributes, choosing different roles. Now, there's another aspect of this, and then we're going to wind it down. And that is, in the book of Isaiah, there are some of the most clear statements about who God is. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. So this is God himself saying, I am, there's only one God, there's no other God beside me. So this calls into question that though the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are both God, they are not other gods. The only way to reconcile this with Scripture is to understand that there are multiple people within the Godhead. The New Testament states that in Christ dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about men being able to observe the Godhead and the power of the Godhead in creation, which, as we've spoken about from Genesis, is very clearly the work of more than one person. Let us make man in our image. You have the direct involvement of Christ in creation as well as the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. There is clearly a collaborative effort here in 
the Godhead, pointing to multiple individuals within the Godhead, all of whom are clear. They're not mysterious personages. These are people that are clearly articulated in Scripture with their own roles and with their own relationships with us as human beings. 1 Corinthians is a great place to look at the, the relationship between us and the Holy Spirit. Or John chapter 14, even the Spirit of truth, who I will send to you, and ye know him, but the world does not know him, for he will dwell with you and shall be in you. The Spirit of promise, which the Bible says in Hebrews is the earnest, the down payment of what's coming next for us, and that we are sealed unto the day of redemption by the Spirit. It also speaks of the Spirit in his work of sanctification in our life. It also speaks of the Spirit as being the one who places us in unity with Christ forever. Now, all of these things point to the separate individuals who occupy the office of the Godhead without any scriptural tension, without any unnecessary confusion. The confusion comes again from all of these folks who are teaching about this singularity. That was never countenance, not in the Old Testament, not in properly understood Judaism, regardless of traditional Judaism. The Jews were rebuked for traditional Judaism. Let's just get that out of the way, because they fundamentally misunderstood the message of the prophets. They fundamentally misunderstood the personhood of God and the identity of the Father. Jesus tells them this to their face. So we can be confident in the fact that what we understand from these scriptures is not some type of esoteric contradiction that we're just playing gymnastics to get around, but something that's been intended from the very beginning from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And further than that, it was clearly held by the early church. I mean, it had become a clear tradition long before Praxius and Notius ever showed up, which is a strong testament to the fact that the Holy Spirit was clearly teaching the early church about what was happening in scriptures, to say nothing of Christ himself, whose teachings the early church were following and were clearly reverencing Jesus Christ as God, having seen him not only rise from the dead, which Paul says in Romans 1 is a clear indication of who he is. Luke says that these were infallible proofs of Jesus' claims. But then you also have his ascension, where he's clearly going back to the Father, as we see in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, and as we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Isaiah continues in verse 11 of chapter 43, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Now that's an interesting one, because you find in the New Testament that Jesus is called our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 35 is just as clear that God is the one who does the saving. And the verse in Romans 10, verse 13, is clear. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Bible says. And it's clear from John chapter 3 that this is who God sent. He sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So when he said, and beside me there is no Savior, you can't have Jesus not being God and being the Savior or being the Savior and not being the same essence as the Father. That means that the Savior of the world is God, and it's not the Father. Why else would Jesus say what he says? I'm here to show you that the Father himself loveth you, even as I have loved you. That's a clear separation of personhood. Hosea chapter 13, verse 4. Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, 
for there is no Savior beside me. This goes far beyond the salvation from Egypt. This goes to spiritual salvation. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? This could refer to what Christ says in the book of Revelation, where he is the ancient of days. Who hath told it from that time? This also refers back to the verse I told you I'd speak about later, where it talks about him being the eternal father. It literally means the father or originator of eternity. It's not saying that he is the same person as God the Father. It's talking about him being the father of timelessness. And he continues here in verse 21. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Isn't that interesting? There's the bifurcation again. We find that in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, and in all of the other New Testament passages that I've mentioned, and in other passages that I haven't even touched yet, where it talks about thanks be to God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes it refers to the Savior as being God, just like the Old Testament. No wonder Christ had so much irritation with the people to whom he gave all these verses who fundamentally misunderstood them and misrepresented him and expected him to be something he was not, while at the same time not expecting him to be everything that he always had been. Jude chapter 1 verse 25 says, To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. That has direct connections to Matthew chapter 28. The reason I'm going through all this is not just to make your head spin or anything like that. It's so that you are fully aware that the claims of these other doctrines are absolutely incorrect and unbiblical, and that there are hundreds of verses whereby these truths can be established. First John chapter 4, verse 14, As we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, how is that possible if he says, Besides me there is no other God? Beside me there is no other Savior, and yet then it clearly says that the Father sent the Son. That begs the question, well, where did the Son come from? He had to have been with the Father in order for him to have been sent. And it says this and confirms this in John chapter 3, verse 16. So the idea of God and Savior, of the Father and Jesus and the Spirit, these all must fit together in a oneness that is known as God, but is not the name of any one of them. It is the title of which all of them equally carry in an equality that cannot be manufactured or even potentially comprehended here on earth. We'll have the rest of eternity to figure that out. But we don't need to be confused about the claims of Scripture that there's only one God, and yet there is more than one person who occupies that office. You must view the word God as an office, according to Scripture, as I hope that I've been able to demonstrate to you today. You shouldn't be confused about the idea of the Trinity or be convinced that it's Greek idolatry. No, this comes from people who maintained a false construct throughout the early teachings of the church that held on to the early teachings of Judaism, which was the very thing that caused them to believe that they were justified in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If one is to follow the teachings of Jesus, one cannot believe that he is not God as he both claimed and as is both established in the teachings in the New Testament and in the Old. Don't be afraid of this doctrine. Don't think it's strange. It's perfectly logical if one is simply reading the scriptures for what they say 
without having a need for them to mean something. It's the only way in which scripture maintains a cohesive whole, as opposed to the proof text that might be brought to you by modalists who have an alternate agenda that's really based on a very ignorant conception of who God declared himself to be in the first place. I appreciate your attention. I know we've covered a lot of ground. Most of it has been scripture. That has been the intention so that you would be prepared and you can listen to this and go back and look at these verses and see how they fit together. Because at the end of the day, folks, in these types of discussions, the word of God is our authority. And this is not some spurious doctrine that's been created out of thin air. There was literally no need for this doctrine. There was no need for there was no need for the Jewish idea of monotheism to have not continued unless there was a clear tension in the teachings that were given to give further revelation to what God had been saying from the very start. And that's where we stand. We stand on the scripture, and the Bible says, Let God be true and every man a liar. The reality of the Trinity, the persons within the Godhead, the equality within the Godhead is clearly shown here. And I trust that this encourages you, and that does give you the solution to the cultic mindset that we're confronting here with monarchianism, now oneness Pentecostalism, adoptionism. So again, if you have any additional questions, feel free to write us here at Squawk Student Questions at Calvary College. The email is calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Again, that's calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. This has been Squawk, and once again, till next time, thank you for listening.